0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Going to John chapter 14. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about continuing on in the series in John because I wanted to do a three part series on Advent, but this verse this section of verses fits perfectly um, in the advent story so last week we talked about uh, god is with us we talked about the incarnation and jesus uh, here among us this week we're going to talk about um, jesus promised the holy spirit And so God is with us in Christ, but God is in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, reading John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth It's the idea of mutual indwelling verse 21 whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him and manifest myself to him judas not iscariot said to him lord how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world jesus answered him if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him what a promise verse 24 whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me these things i have spoken to you while i am still with you focus again on verse 26 but the helper If you were reading this in King James, if you're familiar with this verse, it would say the Comforter. ESV renders it the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let's pray. Father, these words were spoken 2,000 years ago through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who promised to us his spirit and we are recipients of that holy spirit it's what makes you a reality with us today and we thank you lord that your spirit is here among us but not just among us but within us as believers so lord bless this time together bless your word let it open up our understanding and touch us in miraculous ways and we pray this all in the name of jesus amen you may be seated In the beginning, right out of the gate in the book of Genesis, we find that God dwelled with mankind in the Garden of Eden. It is impossible for us to comprehend what that relationship was like between God and humanity before the fall in the Garden. Before sin enters into the world, God walks with Adam and Eve. He walks with humanity. What is often missed in, if you just read the Bible and don't understand how everything fits together, is that the Garden of Eden was the original temple. I could show you this uh, in greater depth, but just suffice it to say that we should think of Eden as a garden temple. And the imagery for this is unmistakable because a temple is not just a building that is made with hands. A temple is anywhere where God meets man. That is the definition. That's what defines and makes a temple. It's where man comes to meet God. It's where heaven comes to meet earth. And that is what Eden was. It's the place where heaven comes down and meets earth. And Adam and Eve, they function as a type of priest in the garden temple. They are caretakers. They are stewards of this garden temple. In Genesis 2 verse 15, this is before the fall. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is not a curse from the fall of man. Adam and Eve worked before the fall. You know, the Bible does tell Adam, you know, from henceforth you're going to, to do this by the sweat of your brow. And there are things that come, consequences that come with the fall. But work in itself is not one of them. Work is honorable. People like people who like to work. This comes back all the way to the garden temple, God commissions Adam to work the garden. The same word that is used for work in this verse is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of serving God, and it even refers to the tabernacle duties in the temple of the priests in Numbers 3 and 4. So we have this this word, this idea of work in the temple that starts with Adam in the garden. Eden was a sacred place. Adam and Eve serve as mediators between heaven and earth and this is what makes sin even more tragic they weren't just farmers who till the ground and just happened to eat the wrong fruit one day off of a tree they were holy caretakers of the divine space on earth god had entrusted them with this and the story of the bible is the story of god not only restoring mankind to right relationship So a lot of times people see this as the overarching story of the Bible. You know, man, God creates man in his image, mankind sins, he falls. So the whole story of the Bible is restoring this back to its creation. N.T. Wright argues, and I believe successfully, that this, what I just said, Is a subplot of the Bible but not the overarching theme of the Bible the main plot in the Bible is that God is restoring creation back to its original order and as a subplot of God bringing creation back to its original order part of that is God bringing man back into right relationship with him heaven and earth were divorced when sin entered into the world God since that time has been restoring the creation And this is Romans 8, just echoes all of this language and this idea that this is what God is doing, is restoring the creation. Mankind falls in Genesis 3, and by Genesis 3.15, immediately out of the gate, we find the promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." It's a prophecy in Genesis 3 of what Christ is going to do to Satan. I'm going to crush your head and your head is going to bruise the bottom of my foot because I'm crushing you. This is one of the first of many prophecies in the Old Testament telling us that one is coming to make things right. God would have a people. He would have one people in the Bible, the people of God. It begins with God calling out Abraham and making him the father of the Jews and the father of all those who believe in Jesus the Messiah. God gives Moses the law for the people to follow. And the law that Moses gives him, all these ceremonial laws of you, you, know, you can't eat this kind of, of seafood and you definitely can't have pork... And you've, your clothes have to be of one type of fiber, and on and on and on, all these things. This is the law. This is a placeholder to keep the people of God in the interim period of time between the time that God gave Abraham the promise and the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus Christ. The promise was and is that the Son of God is coming in human flesh. The person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is going to walk among us. That's the promise given. Divinity and humanity fused. God is His Father. Mary is His Mother. John 1, the Word was God and the Word was with God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's what we talked about last week. The first part of Advent. Advent, Christ with us. God with us in Christ, the first coming of Jesus. But the first coming of Jesus, you say, how in the world does the baptism of the Holy Spirit have to do with the Garden of Eden? It's because all of this restoration leads us to the first coming of Jesus, the first advent. But that was not the crescendo of God's redemptive play. God's redemptive play has three acts. The first act, Act 1, is God coming in Christ, but it has two more acts in this play. Act 2 is the coming of God in the Holy Spirit, and Act 3 is the coming of God in Christ at the second coming. We are living in the middle of Act 2 in this redemptive play. Acts 1, 4, and while staying with them, this is Jesus after the resurrection, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? it's helpful to keep in mind that the Jews looked at Jesus as the one that was going to free them from Roman oppression. This is the idea of what the Messiah was. They were narrow-minded in their thinking. This is why John the Baptist has to say, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Because the Jews see him as a very Jewish Messiah that's going to free Israel from their bondage, their captivity. helpful to know when you're reading the new testament that the jews in their mind this is not just something i think this is something that's well documented the jews in their mind were still in captivity they had been carried away in babylonian captivity for 70 years in the old testament but they never did even after they came back to their homeland they never saw themselves as free they were still in their mind captives. And now they really are, because even though they're living in their homeland, they are under Roman rule and authority. It's the Roman government who rules over them. And they look to Jesus as a Messiah, and they see Jesus as a failure because He did not restore the kingdom back to Israel. So they ask the question in Acts, Lord, is it this time? I mean, you've, you've went through the resurrection now, I mean, you're, you're the one that disappears at tables. I, I read it last night. He's eating with his people after the resurrection. And the Bible says he vanishes from their sight. And then he's, they're locked in a room, and all of a sudden he's showing up in their midst. You didn't do this before the resurrection, Jesus. Now that you have all of this, are you going to restore the power back to Israel? the kingdom back to Israel. And his answer was, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Acts two starts. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost is a Jewish feast They were all together with one place. They were waiting in Jerusalem like Jesus told them to do. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like as a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance you skip down a few verses in verse 14 they had been accused of being drunk it said all these people are bab- babbling in other languages so people from all over the world have come together to celebrate this feast the Bible says that at this feast there's all these nationalities. There's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and all these people who speak different languages. And they now hear all these people that they know live in Jerusalem who are speaking their native tongue worshiping God and they said they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says... Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Their day started at six in the morning, so it's nine a.m. They are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what you're seeing. And it was uttered through the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. In the last days... God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood before the day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting Joel. is all he's doing. The prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Just as the law of Moses in the Old Testament was the in-between time given between the promise of the first coming and the fulfillment of the first coming. So you've got the promise, the law, the fulfillment in Christ. So... The era of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the church age that we're living in, is the time of the in-between between between the promise of the second coming of Christ. So the the Bible tells us God is coming back again in Christ. There is going to come a day when Christ returns to this earth. We call it His second coming. We'll talk about that next week. It's promised. It has not happened yet. The in-between time... What the Bible calls the last days is the era of the Holy Spirit. We are living in this in-between time. Just as the people of God in the Old Testament lived under the law, waiting for the first coming, the people of God in the New Testament live under the reign of the Holy Spirit awaiting the second coming of Christ. This is how the New Testament mirrors the Old Testament pattern. And it shall come to pass, God declares, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. We find ourselves living in the era of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit mediates the reality of us abiding in Christ by allowing the spirit of Christ to abide and dwell inside of us. And Christianity is the only religion that makes such a radical claim. Islam claims in the Quran that we are near. Allah the Quran the words actually say we are nearer to him than his jugular vein the writing of the Quran but it does not teach that Allah dwells within us it's quite the opposite the idea in Islam is that Allah is transcendent He is above the heavens and the earth. There is no claim that we could have His Spirit within us. But Christianity makes this bold, outrageous. And if we believe the Bible correct claim that because it's in the Bible, that in Act 1 of the play, God is with us in humanity. But in Act 2 of this redemptive play, God gets even closer by dwelling with us, inside of us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why the idea of the Garden of Eden is so important. Just as God would tabernacle with His people in the Garden Temple of Eden, just as God would tabernacle among His people in the temple in the Old Testament, His Shekinah glory manifesting itself upon the Ark of the Covenant, so now the Holy Spirit, who is not a thing, a lot of times we say the Holy Spirit like it's an object. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. It is the person of God Himself. It is a way of saying the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, not a portion of God, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the one true God, is tabernacling within every single believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. What Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden with God walking with them, what the people of God in the Old Testament enjoyed by God tabernacling one day a year on the Day of Atonement where one man, the high priest, could experience the manifest presence of God, what people 2,000 years ago enjoyed by walking with God in flesh, we'd enjoy today through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of this temple language is echoed through Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, What? Question mark. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The context of why he's saying that is, it's, a lot of times this doesn't get pointed out, that Paul's teaching that we should not sin with our bodies. He's like, you can sin with your bodies and your body is sacred. He's helping us to see our bodies are not just for physical means, but are to be used to glorify God because God dwells in our bodies. We have a very Western idea that the physical is not there's nothing spiritual about physical matter. All spiritual is this ethereal, invisible. And um, Paul saying, No, your physical body. Is now the temple it's sacred it's holy it's set apart unto God so what is the Holy Spirit well one that's the wrong question we should ask who is the Holy Spirit because it's not an object it's the person of God so I'm continuing to read in Acts 2 because Acts 2 is a sermon Paul is writing about David. So I'm skipping over a lot of this for time's sake. But Paul's writing about David and says, He, meaning David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Paul claimed that David saw the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament and that he was not abandoned to Hades, meaning the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, Uh, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God because Jesus has just ascended he where did he ascend to he's ascended at the right hand of God having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he meaning Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing with your eyes and hearing with your ears For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now this sermon that Peter is giving is going to be echoed by Stephen five chapters later. And Stephen, the response that day was they stoned Stephen to death. I preached on this chapter several months ago, and I think one of you had pointed out, yeah, but Stephen was also a little more inflammatory in his language. Uh, He kind of dug at them a little more. It's like, yes, that is true. Uh, But Peter reveals the same truth. This Jesus, who you just crucified, is actually the one that God sent to be your Savior. And God does a miracle. He opens up the eyes of their heart. They see it. Uh, When they they heard this, they were, King James language was they they were pricked to their heart. This renders it. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we to do? And Peter says to them, his answer was, repent. You've got to repent for this wrong that you did. I mean, we've all repented. If we're Christians, we've all repented. None of us, and we've repented for things that we're like, I can't believe that happened. We go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. None of us have ever had to repent and ask God for forgiveness for murdering his son. That's what Peter's telling them to repent about. The first thing you need to do is to seek godly sorrow and repentance um, because you just crucified the Son of God. So first you've got to do that. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. King James remission, most modern translations, forgiveness. It's the same word, the same word used for forgiveness in in the original language is used uh, for forgiveness here or remission here. Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, we pronounce the name of Jesus over people when we baptize, but please, please don't think that that's everything that this is referring to. We are vastly undercutting what baptism means if we simply think that this has to do with a formula. This is the idea of being baptized into Christ. You're baptized into His name. His name represents something. You are being buried in Christ. Paul is going to unpack this idea all through the New Testament about being buried with Christ. I am in Christ. The number one identifier in the New Testament for the people of God is the identifier in Christ or in Him. It's not the word Christian. It's not the word believer. It's in Him. Or in Christ over a hundred times the New Testament will describe you and I as being in him we identify by being in Christ through baptism and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise of this is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself central to the work of the Holy Spirit living inside of us is Jesus Christ. When you think of the Holy Spirit you should think of Jesus. So th- th- these ideas are tied together. It's the Spirit of Christ that is within inside of us. So what does this mean though? What, what does it mean for God to be a Holy Spirit? Well holy I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because I think we know what holy is. Holiness is God's nature. It's like God's holy. I'm not. God tells us you have to be holy. That does not mean how you live. You cannot live moral enough to be holy. It has an effect of morality. But I've known some very moral upstanding people. It doesn't mean they're holy. The only thing that makes you holy is when you have the holiness of God inside you. You are holy by belonging to Him. You are holy by proxy. Holiness is God's nature. God's by default holy. I am not. But what is this idea of spirit? In the Greek, you were to read Holy Spirit in the Greek, and I rarely, you all know, months and months and months of listening to me, you know I rarely appeal to the original language. I don't make that appeal that often. I think an overuse of talking about the original languages can create skepticism in the minds of people who, when they read it in the English, which is the only way that you're going to read the text, you're like, well, what does that really mean? It's like, as a good friend of mine says, we are fortunate to have lots and lots of good translations of the Bible. We use ESV in corporate worship, read the King James, it's magisterial language, read the NIV, it's a little easier to read, read the NASB. It's more literal. We could go on and on and on, right? I mean, it's, we have lots of, we're blessed. There's some people in the world that don't have access to any Bibles. We have access to all kinds of translations and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. So in the Greek, the Holy Spirit, that word spirit, it is in the Greek, it would be the word penevma, we would transliterate this into our language and we would say pneuma, you wouldn't pronounce it pneuma, it would be, because it's P-N, it would be pneuma in the Greek, in the English it's going to be pneuma. What do we know about pneuma or things that are pneumatic? They're air powered, right? Pneumatic tools. I just sold an air compressor and a couple nail guns on Facebook and it's a pneumatic air gun. Means that it shoots that nail, it doesn't use electricity, it uses a blast of air, pneumatic. This is the holy pneuma. It literally means the holy wind or the holy breath of God, a blast of air. That's what it means. I've heard it said, I've heard it said in classes that the Greeks did not have, they only had one word for wind and spirit, that's simply not true. You can look in the New Testament and find all kinds of references to the wind outside, and it uses a whole different word. But the word pneuma does mean a blast of air. Now, why is this relevant? How, how is this? Is it because this is how the nature of God works? When Paul writes to Timothy and says, "All Scripture," first, second Timothy three sixteen, "All Scripture is given by inspiration of God." King James. The modern translations are a little better translating this. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed. This is how God works. So the Bible is the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Pneuma, the breath of God in writing. God breathes, He moves upon holy men of old, they write, and we get the Bible. What does God do to give Adam life? God breathes into him and man becomes a living soul. What happens in creation? The Spirit of God moves. The moving of the Spirit of God moves and then God says. So God's Spirit moving and God's voice create things that did not exist before. All these people understand this. That are hearing him say this Holy Spirit. The Holy Breath of God is coming down. John 3 makes a lot more sense if you know this because Jesus tells Nicodemus, don't be a surprise that I say to you that you must be born again. And then he uses an analogy of wind and says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. You're outside on a windy day, you see the trees move. I don't see the wind, but I see the effects of the wind. And then Jesus makes a statement. So is every person that is born of the spirit of children to another the working of miracles to another prophecy this is not prophecy in terms of bible prophecy in times this is about things that are speaking prophetic uh, that god lays it upon their heart the gift of prophecy is what i believe makes preaching different than teaching i will prepare notes i will have a sermon outline i will have a sermon manuscript There will be things that I say in the middle of the sermon that I had no intention of saying. Yes, sometimes it's just me spouting off my own words, but I try to minimize that. But there are times when the Holy Spirit will lay something upon a preacher's heart, and he will begin to speak things into the lives of the people that were never on a manuscript. Straight manuscript preaching, conveying of knowledge, it's teaching. It's needful. Got to have it. Preaching takes it to another level. It integrates the gift of prophecy in with teaching. And that's what preaching is. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. We call this the discerning of spirits. This is a gift God has given me. I I have operated and always have in this gift. I can discern a spirit. Another gift is the interpretation of tongues. God's never given me that gift. I've never been in a, in a church service where I heard somebody speak in tongues that I thought I know the interpretation of that. Never happened. That bothered me for years and years and years until I heard one of the greatest preachers I've ever known heard the man speak in tongues a thousand times and he got in the pulpit and said God's never given me the gift of interpretation. I, don't, I have no clue what, th- what that means. Why? It's the why is at the end of this passage It is the Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. He is God. If God wants you to have the gift, you'll have it. If He doesn't, you won't. And you don't want that gift. You do not want the gift that God doesn't want you to have. He is going to divvy out the gifts. It's like Christmas Day. This is for you and this is for you. The discernment of spirits. This is beyond being able to read people. This is being able to pick up a person's spirit or a spirit that is work, at work in that person. I've, I've seen people come into churches and been able to immediately identify. I saw one guy in particular that walked in and just enamored the church in ways that I have never seen anybody enamor the church. People were talking about him. He was popular. And I marked him and I said, that's a bad seed. That's a bad apple. This will not end well. And it did not end well. It ended up not ending well when law enforcement told the church, he's a guy that you don't want involved with your young people. That's when it ended. To another, various kinds of tongues. This is a gift of tongues. It is a gift of the Spirit and another interpretation of tongues. This is interpreting I don't know of any other thing that's more clear in the New Testament than how Paul teaches on how tongues ought to be administered in a church service. I wish everything were that clear, but Paul's very clear about this, about how this operates in a a corporate worship service. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I will say it again. The gift of... The gifts of the spirit, because the Bible says that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the, the spirit is subject to the prophet. It does not make you spiritual because you can discern spirits. It does not make you spiritual because you can lay hands on the sick and they recover. It does not make you spiritual because you have the gift of knowledge or wisdom or insight. None of those things make you spiritual. It means that you have learned to operate in a gift of the spirit. Number seven. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit. So Paul writes in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And he starts listing all these works of the flesh. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. There's nine of these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And all those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also keep step, keep in step with the Spirit. It is not a matter of, I need to pursue the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. It's not either or, it's both and. Believe people should earnestly covet the gifts. That's what Paul teaches. Covet these gifts, be used in these gifts. But while you're doing it, And this is the harder part, I think for people, this is the harder part, is manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, meekness, temperance, faith, against such there is no law. This is what it means to be Spirit-filled. This is how we know. The ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit is the ongoing fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit manifests in our lives. And none of us are all of these things perfectly because none of us are exactly Christ like. Does everyone know you as being full of love, full of joy, full of peace, complete, you know, just full of patience, kindness, gentleness, self control? Probably not. And neither do they know me that way. Why? It's because we still have all these areas of the flesh, the old man that still raise its ugly head, and that's the battle and the war until the end of time, until the end of our race. But we go back to these things and we say, Lord, help me be more loving. Help me have more joy have more peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And as I am exuding, producing these fruit of the Spirit out of my life, Let me also be used in the gifts of the Spirit as you see fit. This balance is how you can be used by God. Fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, this morning... I have not done justice to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There's so much in Your Word and so little time to to talk about it, but I pray, Lord, that You would put something inside each of our hearts and on our own that we would go back and we would begin to ponder on these things and look into Your Word closer and really talk to You every day about what does it mean for me to be Spirit-filled. The work of the Holy Spirit is present every day in, in my life, in the lives of, of every true Christian. So, Lord, as your Spirit is here within us, I pray, Lord, you would lead us and guide us and direct us so we would not see our faith as something that is in a compartment one hour a week, but that our faith goes with us because you go with us. that we know that we're two or three are gathered together in your midst that you're present but we also know that our bodies are the temple of the holy spirit that tomorrow morning when we get up and face battles that we know that you're dwelling inside of us whether we feel you or not we know you're there because your word says you're there so help us to cultivate that relationship help us to embrace that reality of your holy spirit your presence inside of us lord that you are with us always we don't have to pray for you to be with us you are near to us and within us every day i'm thankful that your presence is not predicated on our emotional state when we have bad days we know that you're just as near as when we feel you we know that your presence is simply a reality that we trust We have faith in this. So Lord, let us be spirit-filled witnesses that that spirit would shine through us as a light to a lost and dark world. We pray this this morning in Christ's name, amen. God bless you this morning. We'll close in song.